Welcome back, everyone. This is Elliot with the Poor Poles Almanac, and we're here again today to talk about nuts. Hell yeah. Nut time. For Norm, may he rest in peace. R.I.P. in peace, buddy. May he rest in halves and pieces. Halves and pieces. Today, we're talking about hickories. So at this point, we've covered oaks, chinkapins, and black walnuts, and uh, arguably the oak is the uh, probably the only one that compares to the hickory in terms of... I guess, like significance for people and pollinators. I think most people are familiar with corn. I would hope so. That it was a staple crop in North America when the Europeans came over. However, the role of hickories has actually been kind of misunderstood during this period and really downplayed. Before we get going, Elliot, have you ever had a hickory nut? Like one of the sweet ones? No, but I did lose to a hillbilly in a barnyard wrestling match one time. It was his secret move. It was called the hickory nut crunch. It was like a Ugh, the most vicious. Like it was the most vicious figure four, and my parts ended up behind the crook of his knee, and it was like a like just think of a nutcracker. Like that's pretty much what it was. Dude, it, it makes me weep. It makes me weep still thinking about it. Never let them hit you with the hickory nut crunch. Yeah, man, I didn't see it coming. Can you it, confirm it was not Norm? I mean, his name might have been Norm. I sort of blacked out. <laughs> so. <laughs> So let me ask, does this mean you have not had a, a sweet hickory nut? I was trying to answer a question like you. Let me give you the short one. No, I've oh. never had a sweet hickory nut. Okay. For folks that have never had one, like Elliot, they're very similar to like a pecan, which is not surprising if you know how closely related they are, because they're they're so closely related they can interbreed. Creates what's called a hickan. Hickories, specifically in my experience, the shagbark hickories, and we're going to go into a little bit of detail on this, they have a really subtle maple flavor paired with pecan. So this this like gives it a really nice... It Honestly, I think anyone that's had one will tell you it is the most delicious nut they've ever had. And the only reason why you've never eaten one is because it's near impossible to get one out like whole. I should back up. Okay, here we go. This is oh, where man. it starts. This is Jesus. where the episode starts. Ice Age time. Okay, Scrat. Yeah, so not that. Not Scrat? Not Scrat yet. Scrat attack comes when we need it. Not the Scrat attack? Hick hickories and pecans, we call them nuts. They're actually not. They're actually droops or drupaceous nuts rather than the true botanical nuts because they grow within an outer husk. Okay, sure. I sort of knew that. Everyone knows that. Everyone, everyone knows, knows it. Drew. Sorry, everyone. Context. The hickory nut showed up on the North American landscape between like 35 and 60 million years ago. And uh, this was one of the later arrivals to the continent. And this was after splitting from the walnut. That's what I'm saying. Scrat time. Unlike the story of the oak, hickories actually did really well in the last ice age. This reduced the number of genetic divisions from the isolation that we saw with those oaks, which is why we have so many different types of oaks. All of the hickories on the East Coast today, of North America at least, are basically the genetic descendants of a few bands of trees that survived from basically the Carolinas to the east of Texas. Now, the impact of forcing the entire species to exist in a small land space has meant that that genetic diversity, as I was saying, is fairly low, except for the hickories from Texas. And we're not going to really talk too much about those because that's a little outside of my wheelhouse. Now, what's particularly interesting is that um, 
The pollen record from before the last glaciation event actually suggests that the communities in which the hickories were originally evolved for were very unlike anything that exists today. There, there's no real modern analog for many of the species that they had co-evolved with, that they had evolved specifically with. So they're just kind of this unique thing that exists from our history or from the landscape's history. My God, that's so sad. It's just like a lonely tree that outlived all its friends. I guess like the ginkgo, right? That's like a forgotten clade. R.I.P. in peace, all the ginkgo <laughs> nut consumers. I don't know why I just pictured the movie Encino Man, or maybe a more recent reference would be like the Wally of trees, I guess. Andy, don't Wally Wall Tree. I knew it was coming. I just I walked right into it like a deer in headlights, and I just couldn't couldn't move out of the way fast enough. We love to see it now. Despite the vast geographic diversity of the southeast, which uh, anyone can tell you, like the landscape in like northern Georgia versus the, the lowlands of South Carolina to uh, the Florida Everglades, like there's there's a lot of geographic diversity. Despite this, the genetics of the hickory show very little diversity, and this is most likely due to its role as a more general species in most types of forest ecosystems where they live. That doesn't mean that there's nothing interesting here, and actually there's some really interesting data coming from ploidy studies. Ploidy? Is that a word? Like haploid? Diploid? What what are we talking about? Alright, I got got $150,000 in student loan debt to be a uh, farmer to know what ploidy is. Hell yeah. Freedom. (laughs) Let that freedom ring. This is what I'm here for. Uh, Like, the ploidy is the, like... It's like the number of sets of chromosomes in a in a cell. So sets of chromosomes refer to like the maternal and the paternal chromosome copies in each chromosome pair in which they like naturally exist. Okay. So they have different amounts or different numbers different quantities of sets of chromosomes. And like what does that do? Is that that's Part of the genetic variation? Yeah, so basically the significance of this is that polyploidy, like multiple sets of chromosomes, tend to exhibit like a stronger growth pattern. Um, And we're kind of like only beginning to like fully understand how ploidy can impact the size of, uh, you know, fruit and how it grows. But I mean, like, some plants are, I mean, there are like some ferns, right, that have like 84 sets of chromosomes. I think I'm saying, I think that's right. But There's probably one, at yeah, least. There's, ploidy is like a very like interesting, has, yeah, has very interesting like effects on, yeah, crop breeding. Yeah, and we're, I have some interesting facts to bring up about that in a minute. Now, hickories, before we get there, are generally considered diploid which is like common in many plants. However, uh, specifically in North America, there appear to be some tetraploid species, meaning that they carry four sets of chromosomes. Yeah, okay. So I knew diploid and haploid. I know those words from, I think I took like basic level biology in high school. But meaning all the, the hickories have genetics 
or I guess the ploidy part of the genetics is what allows them to have stronger growth and bigger fruit sizes. Is that what I'm getting? They could be. And we're going to kind of dig into that a little bit right here. Okay. Let's dig. Let's dig. So it's worth thinking about how ploidiness can be leveraged when people are thinking about breeding projects because of the fact that there is this interesting capacity and it's not a direct correlation. It's like Matt said, there's ferns with very high amounts of chromosomes. It's not a clear, you have more, you have a higher ploidiness, you grow faster, you grow bigger fruits. However, it does have potential for that. If we look at the hickories that we're talking about, if we look at the species that are those tetraploid versions or varieties, they're largely southern hickories. And interestingly enough, they're also the ones with smaller nuts. The interesting thing is that their oil content seems to be quite similar based on that ploidiness. It really raises some questions about the role of domestication in their development that all of the high ploidy ones produce higher amounts of oil, which might have been more valuable than the nut itself. To Matt's point, researchers have believed that this idea of like ploidiness, polyploidiness has played a role in which plants have become domesticated, at least anecdotally, because of all these like benefits uh, and how they can work in unnatural selections. However, the the actual evidence, like despite our our th- the logical process of thinking that's how it would work, the evidence doesn't actually seem to back this at this point. But that doesn't mean it's not true. We just maybe haven't figured it out yet or figured out how to prove it yet. That said, the research in this area, to my point of like, maybe we just haven't figured it out yet. Most of that research is focused on like how we think of conventional annual crops, you know, your wheat, corn, so on and so forth. There really hasn't been any research, at least uh, of significance and scale on perennial crops, which obviously have a much longer timeline of breeding work and arguably have probably been bred longer, and how we think about like qualifying as a domesticated plant. Okay, so that being said, where do, where do pecans fall into this? In such a rush, Matt. We're going to talk about pecans in another episode. Uh, like like six weeks from it's now. It's on the list. It's on the, the list. The goddamn yeah. list. The goddamn list. But um, yeah, let's let's take. I know this is a, a lot of information in a really short period of time. Let's take a two second break. Come right back. Hey there, it's Andy from the Poor Proles Almanac, and and we're not the Poor Proles Almanac. You're right. We are tomorrow today. And I'm Nash Flynn from Death and Friends. Tomorrow today is our chance to talk to folks about cutting edge research that helps us understand what tomorrow looks like. But today. We've got exciting guests. And we'll speculate wildly about what the future looks like. Will the ocean currents slow down in your lifetime, leaving temperate climates decimated? Will we go to Mars? Will we drown in climate-induced ocean floods filled with microplastics? Will new research rewrite the history our children read? Will the sun... Is this going to be another Doomer question? No. Tomorrow, today, wherever you get your podcasts, and also on Instagram. So because of limited research and limited time in this episode, we're only going to cover this subject fairly topically because ploidiness, if you haven't figured it out yet, is something that's really complicated and uh, really deserves its own episode. But really, at this point, my hope is to just like bring this point up so that if people are interested in plant breeding or hickories or how hickories may have evolved and human management in that process... This is just like a really good starting point 
to think about future research. Yeah. And I mean, that just sounds like a really long-winded way of saying you're confused by it and can't really articulate it at this point in time. So we'll just add it to the list. One other thing I want to bring up about this idea of ploidiness with the hickory is that all the tetrapoid species, like I said, they do share a similar geographic region. Further, and I think also really importantly, they overlap with some of the longer settled regions by indigenous communities, which is uh, interesting. Tell me more. I don't. I. Where are we? What what indigenous regions? What year are we is in? it? What indigenous regions are we in? I, come on, Robin Williams, give it to me. I'm not going to do it. Oh my God, Elliot. We've used we've used that so many times in this podcast. We need new material, Andy. We got to keep it fresh. <laughs> I I am fresh. Keep it no, fresh. No, you're not. You are the definition of stale. Any, anyways, um, <laughs> keeping it compost. Keep it so stale, it's composted. At the end of this season, I'm just going to constantly refer to Andy having gone nuts, because that's literally all this season is. Yeah. It's only nuts, all nuts, all the time. Just listening to you go nuts. Go on. Go on with the hickory okay. nuts, man. All right. So uh, one hickory in particular that I wasn't really familiar with until we started doing this research and has gotten my attention significantly is uh, called Caria Polita, which is normal name the common name is sand hickory which while one of the smaller hickories unlike the other hickories it has a very thin shell and very sweet nut meat so typically with uh, hickories the thicker shells tend to have the sweet nuts the thinner shells have the oily nuts so again to go back to the idea of like what which were they domesticating were they domesticating were they selectively breeding specific hickories Thin shell is usually like a, a pretty big giveaway, or at least a flag of like some kind of domestication. Now, this one is the anomaly because it's the sweet nut with a thin shell. Much like when we talked about like oak trees, we talked about like tannins, like where we did this bur oak competition, right? And we got these low tannin big nuts, right? And we we're all pumped about that. There are there is some goodness to having high tannin content. It protects the nut and allows it to store longer. Same thing with like thick shells. Like there's certain benefits to that. It protects the nut. So there's like this really interesting inverse relationship between domestication and resiliency. When we're thinking about this idea of like breeding, we have to think about what the consequences of our decisions are and like kind of how to balance these things, right? Something like this, it kind of gives us like a really cool starting point because it's surviving in nature. It's already got like a lot of really attractive traits for domestication or not even domestication, but like moving it closer to the line of domestication, right? And further, even though it's a southern species, it can survive in cold climates. It can survive up to zone five. And it also thrives in poorer soils, uh, which is just, you know, a win-win. Wow. Jeez. Listeners, you heard it here first. Andy Sports moving the non-natives. Yeah, I can't believe you're associating this idea with us, man. Jesus Christ. Oh, my God. I've trained you too well, Matt. <laughs> so first off, I, I think one thing that, again, made my ears kind of perk up when I started reading about the sand hickory is uh, we actually have some documentation of disjunct populations as far north as Delaware. And so advocating for it to move just like a little bit further north, I think is really totally valid, especially, you know, given climate change wow and a new low a new low for our listeners hiding behind climate change 
Yep, that's it. Hiding behind climate change. Yeah, next he's going to serve us up with the all nut lives matter. All nut lives do matter, first off. Respect the nut. But really, my point is that, like... Wasn't all nut lives matter the uh, policy of the Catholic Church for a while? Bumper sticker? (laughs) Bumper sticker. (laughs) My point, though, with the the sand hickory is not only does it have these really great traits from the nut itself to the where it can grow but further that like clearly indigenous people had been choosing and working with this particular tree at some point pre pre-colonization and also it's really interesting for folks that listen to our chinkapin episode this was found in similar areas where that disjunct ozark chinkapin population was also found it, it speaks to how in like i i think it really highlights how these specific hickories were valued and that like there's clearly massive trading going on and massive genetic manipulation going on for these specific species. And lastly, I do want to point out, this is the anomaly when I said most of the tetraploid produced oil. This is the only one that has a sweet nut on top of that. And it's part of that tetraploid cluster. And it was in the southeast. It just it's a really interesting odd anomaly um that really I don't know it 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 makes me want to know a lot more about this tree that really doesn't have much research done on it. I mean, sounds like it's full of potential. Yeah, now we should probably back up on the whole story of hickory a little bit. Oh my god, like, here just we a go. Here we go. It's never just a little bit. In fact, I bet there's two commas in the amount of years we have to go back. Go. No years. Uh, I just want to kind of go back to like the historical use of the hickory. So the hickory's name actually stems from an Algonquin word, paukahikora, and I'm sorry, I butchered that, I'm sure. And this is the the Algonquin word for a soup made from hickory nuts, as they were described by everyone's favorite colonist, John Smith, upon first meeting them. Records show that hickories have been used as a, a food crop and an oil crop for at least 8,500 years. Andy, you said no years. Sorry. Sorry, I failed you. I thought I said none, but there's only one apostrophe. There's only one comma in there, yeah. Actually, yeah. okay. I comma, take it back. whatever. Per Kalm uh, reported on these nuts, our, our good Swedish friend, which he referred to as, because they had no context for hickory, unique walnuts. And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to quote this because it's a really interesting thing for a couple reasons. So I'm going to see if you guys pick up on them. Nuts of the hickory with the shaggy bark are about the size of a large nutmeg. When both the outer husk and the very hard shell surrounding the kernel are removed, the meat is very sweet and delicious. The nut of the hickory with the smooth bark are a little smaller, about the size of an average nutmeg. The shell around them is very thin. They also have a fair-sized kernel which tastes rather bitter when fresh. When they have been lying for some time, however, the bitterness disappears and they taste good. In the autumn, Nuts of both types are collected in sufficient quantities and kept until needed. Some interesting stuff right there. The first hickory described is, like, based on the shaggy bark, is shag bark, right? However, the second one that he talks about being smooth bark, smaller, thin-shelled, bitter, that could be pig nut or bitter nut hickory. Two hickories that are known for bitterness and typically not eaten because of that bitterness. While pignut has been documented around many indigenous communities, most research has pointed to the oil as being the primary reason for its popularity. Yes, and never heard of them being edible, though. 
Yeah, and that's kind of a big deal. There's no hickory nut that I'm aware of that has ever been described as being able to lose its bitterness. But based on what they're talking about, it is possible. Yeah, I don't think I would like eating bitter nuts. I don't I don't think I'd I don't think I would do that. Sorry, boys. That's what she Hey, we're taking a quick break in the episode to remind you that you can get a whole lot more information from poorproles.com. On our website, we have access to our supplemental reader for the podcast, which provides more depth and context, as well as thorough citations for all of the stuff we talk about in the show. You can also sign up for our newsletter, which updates you about limited releases, such as various nursery stock that we sometimes sell through the Poor Proles website, as well as updates about new merch that we have. You can also support the show through that website, poorproles.com, where you have access to our Patreon and our Substack to get early releases for articles and episodes. Now, if you enjoy the show and are just looking for even more audio content, go check out Tomorrow Today, which just wrapped up season one, or tune into the Gastropocene, which is a project of myself and Dr. Aisha Khan to discuss the way our diets have driven the Anthropocene and what it looks like to use our diets for good. Now, back to the show. Did did Dom the God Hand literally just cut you off? I feel like he actually like runs this podcast and we just here for the ride. This is fun. Okay, so it wasn't just that they were an available food that people consumed. They were eaten and processed at like incredibly high scales. Despite the introduction of corn as like a staple crop and the thing that people talk about when they talk about indigenous foods and diets, unlike the acorn the hickory kind of maintained its status as a major piece of indigenous diets, even though it's not really well documented. William Bertram describes in the late 18th century what he witnessed in the southeastern United States. So we're talking about the 1700s, right? And he says that, and quote, I've seen above 100 bushels of these nuts belonging to one family. They pound them to pieces and then cast them into boiling water, which, after passing through fine strainers, preserves the most oily part of the liquid. I mean, hundreds of bushels, that seems like a pretty big staple. And it is. And we're going to drill down into how big of a staple it was in like a short moment. Unlike acorns, this process is consistent regardless of geographic region. So if you recall, we talked about how the different types of acorns had been correlated with different types of processing. Hickory is basically the same process and really even the same process for oil and for the meat nuts. And this could be because of the fact that there is less genetic variability in comparison to oaks. It could just be because they're really hard to process, at least in terms of like getting the whole nut out. Evidence from various experiments seems to suggest that the more dry the nuts are before processing, the easier the nut meats pull away from the shells. Further, the finer the nuts are broken down or pulverized, the easier it is to separate the shell from the nut meat. Generally speaking, there have been historically say, two products that come from this process. Really kind of three. And the big two are nut milks and oils. If your interest is in the nut meat, the powder of the nut meats can be dropped into boiling water after you grind it all up and stirring it. Basically, all of the shell fragments will sink to the bottom, while the pieces of nut meat will float to the top and can be skimmed off. The meat that comes off of it is basically like a powder and can be used immediately or it can be spread out and dried for storage. Okay, so that sounds like a new idea that I could probably turn into, what, a protein powder empire? These Nuts Protein Powder Company, TM. Oh, 
I'm pretty sure that's already trademarked by those boys who are working on ED. <laughs> D's nuts protein powder. I think it's a brilliant idea. We can do it. Our audience can help. So that's one process. That liquid can also be used. Now, if you boil it longer, much of the oily portion that was buried in those nut meats tends to separate out and rise to the surface where it can then, much like the nut meats themselves, be skimmed off. It's estimated that for every 100 pounds of hickory nuts, one gallon of oil can be produced. I compared this to a couple other crops, and it's not like a very high amount, but also it's much easier work than growing GM corn, right? Now, even after skimming, that milk that remains like whatever kind of just floats in the water, that can still be used for soup stock or it can be drank once the shells have been removed. What's really interesting, though, about this whole thing is that it seems like it would be a lot of work, but the actual caloric return per hour by turning the nut meat into powder versus uh, and boiling, like this whole boiling process versus like attempting to pick out each nut is like very, very significant. Okay, math nerd, hit us with the hit us with the math, <clears throat> dork. All right, so let's go back a little bit. We talked in the oak episode about the largest, easiest to process bur oaks, the the big boys, the massive boys, the ones that were astronomically better calorically per hour for labor. Those could produce around thirty nine hundred and change calories an hour, specifically thirty nine seventy two. Right. How could we ever forget that exact figure? 3972. How could you ever, to be honest? Sleeper agent 3972. Yes. Normal norm. <laughs> Normal norm. <laughs> Checking in for duty. Now, focusing on mocker nuts, since they are better flavoring than bitter nut, which is otherwise the highest calorically producing nut, they produce, with this nut milk process, around 5,210 calories per manual hour, which is a 31% increase in calories per hour. That's very good. Now, even the lowest caloric producing nut for hickories, the shell bark, is still only a few hundred calories below the bur oak, which makes it like eight times higher than most other acorns. Damn, okay. So the nuts themselves are calorically dense, but to extract those calories with a, a simple process, you really get a big bang for your buck, basically. Big bang for your nut. Yeah, you get a big bang for your nut. The process seems like, I don't know, to me at least, the idea of like making like a broth basically seems like very wasteful and time consuming. But it actually is like, and like it makes sense now why it was used so much. Because like, if you're thinking from like a prepper perspective, where it's like, I have to live on the landscape around me, am I going to drink nut milk if it's eight times higher in calories? then like have a meal yes i'm going to or eight times less work for the same amount of calories i can either do eight hours of work and have like a handful of nuts or i can do one hour's worth of work have the same amount of caloric content but in a bowl of soup i'm taking the soup i don't know about you guys yeah yeah i mean i, I think yeah. i'd take the definitely soup. taking the soup it sounds like they did it in batch work, so maybe it's stored for a good amount of time, too? Yeah, so hickories could be uh, stored for long periods of time, both in the shell and then through processing it into that powder, right? And obviously, oil stays for a decently long enough time. The milk itself, I think, is pretty short-lived. Okay. But you, you can like recreate it, and we're going to talk about that in a minute, actually. So basically, my point is that through this process, 
it's almost impossible to try to compete with hickory in terms of like its caloric return per hour of labor, which is why even when corn came and acorns and other crops kind of moved to the side a little bit, they weren't completely out, but like no longer a priority. The hickories continue to be like a fairly significant component of like the calories that indigenous people con- uh, consumed, even through the the 1700s, when again, most other tree crops had just kind of become more of a, a, a complementary thing versus actually a primary part of their diet. Yeah, it seems like most people would assume that corn was by and far the most important crop. Yeah, and as an annual, it was. I mean, I think it's interesting how Western scientists kind of erased the tree crop role even though the evidence now shows otherwise. And I wonder how much of that was like, because we assumed their food system was like ours and like entirely based around annual crops. Yeah, Europeans misunderstanding something right in front of them. It doesn't sound likely. I don't think so. Yeah, you're right. No, not not in my America. So I do want to back up a little bit. It was a staple crop because of how it was processed, right? Because it was able to, you know, you could get these powders that you could store. You had the oil that could could be separated and used for cooking. And um, again, this was basically the case everywhere that hickories were consumed. And while I said that, like, it was overwhelmingly the same process to consume the hickory, there is one other variation and it's kind of the same thing. It's not exactly the same thing, but it is kind of interesting. It goes to Elliot's point about like storing this. And it's this process that the Cherokee of Eastern Oklahoma did creating what they called uh, nutballs, which were called uh, kunuche. Now, this process involved drying nuts out for months on end, again, to make sure that that nut separated more easily from the shell. And by doing this, they would crack them very carefully, allowing them to keep as much of the shell removed as they could and then pounding the rest into like this oily meal with the idea that like there's probably going to be a little bit of shell on it but not too much and they make these like oily balls that are like two and a half to three and a half inches now if these were stored in cool dry environments they could be stored for years okay so it sounds like a like a nut meatball yeah a nut meatball have the vegans found out about this this is the crossover we weren't expecting I like it a meatball, We're... you know. The spicy nut meatball. It's the one we deserve, though. Yes, it's the one we deserve. We're bringing on the vegans after scaring them away. So these balls were typically not actually just eaten like a, a road snack. They're actually added to hot water, which would then like melt and give that, add that milky or that nut milk type thing with the ball in it. I'm just going to leave that low hanging nut fruit there. It's too easy, man. That sounds yeah. like a layup. That does sound good, though. It does sound pretty tasty. I would eat it. <laughs> yeah. So then they would sometimes strain this, and they would serve it over like hominy or rice. And basically, the idea was that the balls would make transporting this food easier. Then again, you know, like I was saying, you could have the nut milk. It's not going to store for very long. Also, you're trekking a bunch of liquid, which is a pain in the ass, versus just going someplace you know is going to have water and adding the water there. So I'm guessing this is kind of a part of why this was developed. Yeah, that sounds like a pretty good meal, though. If you paired that with some like local poultry or something, and you got your little nut porridge to go with it, like that sounds pretty feast-worthy. Yeah. Throw some grilled chicken on it. Yeah, I could see that. Or turkey. Really just Americanize it. 
I'm yeah, that's what I thought was like the first Thanksgiving they just had. I don't know. <laughs> yeah, this porridge sounds like re- like nut porridge sounds like amazing. I wonder if there was hic- hazels or uh, hickories in the stuffing at Thanksgiving. Hmm. Maybe. Maybe. You gotta go. You gotta go to Plymouth Rock and find out. Sounds like it was abundant and ate them a lot. So look what they took from you. <laughs> nut stuffing. Uh. Nut stuffing. Ugh. Stuffing it with nuts. What? Go, what? Go. We're trying to celebrate a holiday here. Are we? Is this coming out then? I don't know, actually. Anyways, so let's let's get back into this. So we talked about six episodes back now. The pits that were dug for acorns and hickories in modern Georgia. I don't want to rehash that story of those those pits. So if you are interested and really curious about nut pits, go check out the uh, the oaks and acorns episode but they were used for both acorns and hickories one of the things that we didn't talk about in that episode that applies to hickories is that there was also evidence of what they called slow heat being applied to dry those nuts before storage and um, this was really important for hickories to allow them to store for years the significance of that is that hickories much like acorns are a mast tree so they have mast years where they drop tons of nuts, and then other years they don't. So basically, having the ability to store these for multiple years kind of offsets those mast years so that they spread them out for multiple years. Now, these pits were often like three feet wide, three feet deep. Oftentimes, they have like a narrow point at the top to reduce that exposure to the surface air and probably to help reduce uh, rodents and stuff like that. Now, the bottoms of these pits were also burns to harden the base and lower the sidewalls and give them a little bit more of that, that sturdiness. A lesson from uh, six weeks ago is coming back to me like that. Yeah, I don't remember any of it, but it sounds like they made like a, like a dehydrator or like a, a nut toaster to like make this work. Yeah, kind of. But yeah, to your point, we're not going to go through it too thoroughly. Go check out that piece on acorns. Uh, One last thing I want to talk about before we wrap up, though, is the significance of hickories around climate change. So obviously, if you listened to our episode a few weeks ago on the University of Tennessee's tree improvement program, quick plug, helping and identifying which trees will handle the evolution of our climate is going to be really important in understanding what we need to plant today for our future forests. Because, you know, that canopy that even in our very young forests are 100 years old. So if we're thinking about 100 years from now, we got to be planting them today. Now, the thing about hickories is they're a very, very resilient species. Like, despite the fact that they're a less genetically diverse group? Yeah, so actually, surprisingly, there was research done uh, in the last few years that suggests that even though hickories are used to moist conditions, they're actually far more resilient to drought conditions than previously believed, which um, makes them really good candidates for climate change and like thinking about resilient restoration, right? You know, we pointed to the sand hickory, which can handle these super dry, sandy soils. So like the genetics are in there. We haven't fully understood them because we've just kind of been like, this is where they live. Therefore, that's what they like or they need. Um, That turns out to not really be the case. One of the things that they found is that while drought has slowed growth in hickories in eastern forests, they were actually impacted by late season drought less than the oaks that were nearby, which were primarily white oaks. 
The same study suggested that further drought conditions may increase the importance of hickory in the future because it might have to absorb the roles that the white oaks play in many forests around the East Coast. Not only is the issue of species change a concern because of drought, but also due to what's called mesification. Yeah, that sounds like a word from the book Dune, where you extract water from something that like recently died. Sandworm-pilled. Are we making up more words? Uh, you are not go, on the internet enough. No, Thank go, God. I'm so proud of you. Go on with messification. Okay, so this idea of messification is actually itself a newer concept. But uh, it's one that's like really logical, and it's kind of surprising in retrospect that like it was only in 2008 that the term was coined. Now, the term explains the evolution of fire-adapted ecosystems to long periods of no fire. The term mesification itself basically tries to like quantify the shift of like how the forest changes, how the microclimate within the forest changes, uh, how it shifts the biology within the forest, and how that influences the species compositions within these forests. And I know going to be totally surprising to you. These rapidly changing landscapes have significantly impacted the biodiversity that lives within them, right? So they were burned for 10,000 years, every 10, 20, five years, whatever it might have been based on the location. And then we didn't do it for 300 years. Huh. I wonder if that's going to change what species can survive there. Now, in one particular study focusing on this idea of mesification, researchers found that the forests undergoing this were actually seeing accelerated deaths of young oaks and hickory trees. Now, when I say young oak and hickory trees, I don't mean like what we think of as young, but rather like if an oak tree typically lives in the natural forest without people destroying it for a thousand years, they're young. So these trees that they were looking at were dying around 100, 125 years old, which for us is in at least the eastern half of North America, like what we think of as old trees, generally speaking. That's on the older end of what a lot of our forests have. What's happening is that these shade tolerant, fire sensitive species that no, couldn't survive during those periods of burnings uh, started taking over the forest and the the younger oaks and hickories that otherwise would fill in the understory weren't. Oftentimes, those were invasives that were moving in. And uh, dew pressure isn't helping. I'm trying to help, but I just can't get a freezer big enough. How many deer can you hunt in Georgia, by the way? Um, you mean like legally? Legally, yes. <laughs> Good question. Obviously, legally. Not giving them the uh, flashlight special. To your point, the forests are getting destroyed from a number of different angles. Mesification, deer pressure, suburbanization, poor management, invasive pressure, climate change. There's a lot of stuff going on. Now these forests- <laughs> The big seven. Have, the, the big seven. Oh, was that seven or six? I, don't, I wasn't counting. Oh, I think it was six. The big I was like, six. damn, Matt, you're on top of it. Oh, I had to look up the bag limit. It's 12. It's season. 12? Wow. Yeah. Oh my God. 10, 10 antlerless and two bucks. Dude, you don't need to buy meat anymore. Nah, man. I, like I said, I can't get a freezer big enough. Multiple. I'm going to need about three big, like big, yeah, big ones. Yeah, line them up. Line those suckers up. You got to like ferment Costco it. Costco it. Yeah. Or make a bunch of jerky. Yep. You got, you got options, man. Salt it, salt it down. I need a dehydrator. I've been looking into it, yeah. boys. Trust me. Yeah. Anyway, so- my point is that these forests have existed, or savannas, whatever you want to talk about, they've survived and thrived 
for thousands of years. And within a couple hundred now, they're getting to be replaced by like beach maple forests. And not saying I hate beech trees, but like, first off, they have like a huge health issue, which we're going to talk about in a few weeks. But also, that's just not what the ecosystems evolved for. I don't know. It sounds pretty anti-beach to me. Beach, please. All right. Fuck N- off. <laughs> now, it's not just that like the the white oaks and the hickories are struggling, but also red oaks and black oaks and chestnut oaks have all struggled. It's not just a, you know, well, sucks we lose the white oak or it becomes kind of peripheral. It, it's across the board for oak trees. Now, what's interesting is that the pig nut actually showed some of the most resilience in these unique mesified conditions. Again, making us have to consider its role in the forest to kind of be one of those keystone species because hickories do support a ton of wildlife and obviously produce like a ton of nuts. So that really raises the question of like, can the hickory like do all of the things or many of the things, enough of the things that the oak does for our forests? Well, sounds like it's going to have to. Now, while the hickory seems to do better in drought conditions than oak, and it seems to handle massification, or at least as well as, and often better than oak, there's other research that reinforces the fact that like our forests are just going to have more hickories in the future. And that's specifically around the effects of drought seasonality. And I know that sounds like the most niche, nerdy thing to like talk about. Don't look at me like that, Elliot. It's Almanac. It's Almanac. It's in the title of the podcast. Exactly. Now, a group of researchers focused specifically on this idea of seasonality of drought and how that affects how the forests are being changed. And there's a really interesting nuance. Hickory survives late season drought much better than oak. And they both survive late season drought better than sugar maple, which is one of those dominant trees that often outcompetes oaks and hickories in those uh, mesified, mesophic conditions. But maple does handle early season drought better than either. So basically, when the drought happens matters significantly. So like where in the season and how long the drought is plays an important role in this like forest transition. Yeah, or lack thereof, or mm-hmm. resistance to that transition. To reinforce this idea of can the hickory carry this weight? Now, the genus Caria has been across much of the East Coast, consistently documented as the third most important species for ecological services behind oak and pine, and in some areas even considered the most important. Obviously, it's not like a plug and play, you can just replace this tree with another species, and we don't want that to happen obviously. It's really important to think about like how the diversity of the forest can change while still supporting um, a massively similar biodiversity. And I think the hickory, you know, just for example, if the if a forest that's healthy today, an oak hickory forest, is 70% oak, 20% hickory, and then like a, a smattering of other trees, if that goes to 40 and 50, or 40 and 40 or 30 and 40 or whatever, can the hickory kind of take that role and keep the biodiversity stable and healthy and resilient and all that stuff? And I think the answer to that is yes, it can do that. It can't replace the oak, it can supplement the oak. Between its historical role as like a staple crop for indigenous people, 
its role as an ecologically significant plant in the eastern forest or its potential to survive in our increasingly destabilized climate. I, I definitely think there needs to be more focus put on the hickory and its kind of place in our future for food systems, for ecological systems, all of the above. And, uh, and that's what we're here for. Yeah, so I think the bumper sticker for this episode might be plant these nuts, is what you're saying. Tell them Norm sent you. Gotta plant these nuts. Tell them Large Marge sent you. And also, I'm <laughs> gonna start a niche farming uh, metalcore band. It's gonna be called M- Mesophic Messiah. And the That's first, pretty good. The, first, the first album is gonna be like in the nut pits, like deep in the nut pits. Yeah. Deep in the nut pits. We found the body of Norm. Instead of the body of John Brown, it's the body of Norm's nuts. It? It's like gut, Norm's gutter, gutter, gutter nut pits. There we go. That's it. Oh, man. Starting a metal band. It's going to be awesome. I'd listen to it. You've been talking about starting a metal band since we started this podcast. Where is it? I want that demo. <sighs> I Listen, I need a seven-string guitar. I haven't bought one yet. Oh, my God. It's, it's on the it's, list. It's Stop on the buying list. guns. It's on the list. Step it up. I could literally just turn one of my guns into a guitar. I have too many. A gun tar. Yeah, it's very Mad Maxi. I'm I'm feeling the vibe. There you go. Everyone's feeling the vibes. So next week we got an interview. If you enjoyed this episode, please remember you can subscribe to our Substack for free. Read the same information. Read those studies if you really want to fact check me or whatever. If you want to nerd out. If you really want to nerd out, go for it. We know you don't read. That's why you listen to the podcast. <laughs> wow. Shots fired. <laughs> Please subscribe. I'm projecting. I'm projecting. I'm projecting. Yeah. Uh, Elliot can't read. You heard it here first. Don't know how you did better than me in high school. I'm better at cheating. It says more about me than you, I guess. It does, doesn't Uh, it? Yeah. If you enjoy the show, hit us up on Patreon. Throw us a couple bucks. You can go get your stickers and all that cool stuff on poorprols.com. Yeah, we don't do a good job of promoting our own stuff, so I'm doing that. No, no, um, we leave it up to the <laughs> listeners. Tell all your friends, uh, tell all the people that you talk to on the street, on your way to work, just mention the Poor Pearls Almanac and maybe get some stickers and slam one on their forehead so they don't forget. Yeah, yep. there you go. Next week we have an interview following this up, talking about hickories and hickory research. I'm real excited, you're real excited. If you want to hear it, it is up right now on our Patreon. Right now. $2 a month. Go we're listen gonna, to it. We're going to keep going nuts for nuts this whole season. Ah, uh, yeah, we are. Till next time. <laughs> Till next time. This next is time. Andy Elliott and Matt with the Poor Pros Almanac. Poor Pros Almanac. Shit, I missed it. Yeah. Okay. All right. Bye, guys. Bye.